do we buy in? Do we buy into the content? Do we get lost in this mind-created world of future? Or can we see it as being as light as a momentary thought, a momentary image, just like a sound arises? But it takes a great deal of vigilance because these thoughts, these tides of conceiving are tremendously seductive. Now we've been doing this for years and perhaps lifetimes. But awareness is very powerful. We can actually free ourselves from this prison. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. In one of his teachings, the Buddha said, by overcoming all the tides of conceiving, one is called a sage at peace. By overcoming all the tides of conceiving, one is called a sage at peace. It seemed a beautiful image to me, the tides of conceiving which is this proliferation of concepts that continuously sweep over the mind. And they really are like the great ocean tides, which are endlessly ebbing and flowing. These conceptions, these tides of conceiving, continuously arise in our mind, and they color, and they obscure, and they condition our experience. These concepts take many forms, and they function in many different ways. I want to speak just briefly about how these concepts take root in our minds. We usually have a surface perception of some object, and then we name it. Just very ordinary, and we do this all the time. Man, woman, tree, house, car, earth, whatever. There are endless names for the objects which we perceive. And we assume that this concept that we've created this name, actually refers back to some self-existing thing. We have a surface perception, we name it, man, woman, tree, house, and then we assume that because we've named it, it actually refers to something solid and real. And we don't stop there. Based on that assumption, of it referring back to something real, something existing, we then proliferate 
all kinds of judgments and thoughts and reactions and likes and dislikes and comparisons. Just as a, a very simple example, but it's something which I'm sure you've been observing now for the last few months. How rare it is to see another person and to simply be in the awareness of seeing. I mean, it almost never happens. We see somebody, immediately there's a name, either generic, you know, man or woman or specific name, and we think that there's actually some being, somebody there, and our mind gets carried away by these tides of conceiving. And this is happening over and over and over again. We create whole mind worlds which we then inhabit for varying lengths of time. Mostly we're living in worlds of our own creation. When we look closer though, when we look more deeply at experience, we see that actually there is no solid, solidly existing thing. What we've taken to be so solid is really a constellation of continuously changing elements. We can see this very clearly, and I'm sure to a large extent you have seen it clearly already, when we look at our understanding, our relationship to our bodies. Mostly we have a concept of body. And not only a concept of body, but my body. You know, and that's pretty strongly conditioned. And it's often the immediate response, or the first response to the question which might arise, who am I? This. This is who I am. This body. It's a very habituated belief and response. You know, we wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror, yeah, that's me. (laughs) That's our sense of ourselves. What is that? It's simply a reflection of this form, of this body. When we look more closely, and this is exactly what you've been doing for these past months, we see that the body is not something in itself. The body is really a concept. I can't remember whether I mentioned to you or not, but, uh, you know, some friends have had this uh, laser surgery where they go into the body and there's a camera. They do it by video camera. Now, there's this tiny little camera inserted. And uh, in this one case, there was they were removing a fibroid tumor. And the, the surgeon is actually doing it by looking at the video screen. You know, and manipulating the, the knife. And then as the reward of the surgery, you come home with a video of the inside of the body. And it's quite amazing to watch these things because it's as if one is on the inside and you see the organs and the, the blood and the, I don't, all that stuff. <laughs> the innards. <laughs> It's very rare, I think, for people to identify with that stuff. 
you know, we wouldn't really say, yeah, the liver is me, or the guts, or the blood, or the... But somehow when it's all neatly packaged, you know, in skin, for some reason we become enchanted, and we think, yeah, that's who I am. And it's really quite amazing that we do this. And if we looked even more carefully, more closely, you know, we were able to see microscopically on the level of cells, you know, and all the constituent parts of cells, or even more microscopically and looked at it on the level of atoms and electrons, it becomes even more obvious that there's no one there. I read somewhere that if all the space were removed from the body, the matter that would remain is the size of a particle of dust. Me, (laughs) a particle of dust. (laughs) It's quite astounding what it is we take to be self. You know, what we identify with and It's because we don't look carefully. Okay, we begin to get a sense of this, to drop down from the level of the concept of the body, the appearance, in the sitting, in the walking. You know, when you do the walking meditation, and you're just with the actual direct experience of the sensations, there are times when the mind leaves aside the concept or image a foot or leg or body, and all there is is pressure, lightness, heaviness, softness, hardness, whatever, just the changing sensations being known. That's what's actually there. And so we get a sense for ourselves, not only externally, by looking at a video of the insides or scientific diagram, we see in our experience, we actually feel, become aware of the body as an energy field. And as our mindfulness gets stronger, our perception of this energy field becomes increasingly refined. And sometimes the whole sense of the body or feeling of the body can disappear completely. There are consequences to our not seeing. There are consequences to this proliferation of concept about the body. Because when we don't see clearly and we invest this concept as referring back to something real and solid, what happens is we become very attached to the body because we think it's self. We we think it's I. We get attached to our own bodies. We get attached to other people's bodies. Now, that would be something to look at. What is it that we're actually attached to or attracted to? When there's attachment to the body, what's the implication of that? 
fear of loss, fear of death. Where does our fear of death come from? It comes from attachment to the body because we haven't seen it deeply and clearly, gone beyond the concept. So we create a lot of concepts about physical things. Body, man, woman, tree, house, car, the whole physical world, universe. We also create concepts about mental events. Experiences that are arising in the mind, we don't usually simply rest in the bare perception, the bare awareness of that experience. We create a concept about it. And there's one example I'd like to mention tonight because it has tremendous power over us and it's particularly relevant at this time of the retreat. And that is the concept we create of past and future. We create the concept of time. And it's very interesting to investigate carefully how we're doing this, because for the most part, we are imprisoned by these concepts. You're sitting here, quietly, watching your breath, minding your own business, and some memories come, some recollections. These thoughts arise in the mind quite unconsciously, automatically, mechanically. The concept arises about these thoughts past. We create a concept past And then somehow, and this is quite a bit of mental gymnastics, we take this concept which which we've created of past and toss it back behind us as if the past is a reality back there from which we're coming. But really, what is happening in our experience? Nothing more than a particular kind of thought arising in the moment. The only way that we experience past is as a thought or a feeling in the moment. And the same thing with future. We're sitting, we have certain thoughts or images, anticipation, planning. Have you had any plans today? It's quite astounding to see how much of the time we are living our lives in the concepts of past and future. These thoughts arise, planning, anticipating, imagining. We have this idea, create the concept future, toss it out ahead of us, impute a reality to it, and then living in that mind-created reality. Whereas just like the past, the only way we experience the future is as a thought arising in the moment. Now, as concepts, past and future are huge. I mean, they're really big. You know, we're carrying past and future around on our shoulders, and they're huge burdens.
And yet when we see what they are in our direct experience, we see that they're nothing. They're just a momentary, empty, insubstantial thought in the moment. But so often we're not aware of that. We're not mindful of the fact that it's only a thought. We buy in to the content. We buy into the concept of time, of past and future, which the mind is creating. St. Augustine said that if the past and future really exist, where are they? (laughs) And we actually know where they are. They're right here in the moment. All of the past, all of the future actually collapses into a momentary experience. When it is seen truly in that way, it is a huge relief. It's like this, this burden has been lifted from us. It's much easier, infinitely easier, to relate with and to deal with a momentary thought than to deal with the immensity of these concepts. The concept of past and future of time is a giant tide of conceiving. I say considering this is particularly relevant now because, you know, as the retreat is in the last week, it's quite natural that thoughts, planning thoughts, imagining thoughts, anticipating thoughts are going to arise and they'll probably come more and more often. This is a fantastic time to free yourself from this burden to really investigate what it is that happens when these thoughts arise. Do we buy in? Do we buy into the content? Do we get lost in this mind-created world of future? Or can we see it as being as light as a momentary thought, a momentary image, just like a sound arises? But it takes a great deal of vigilance because these thoughts, these tides of conceiving, are tremendously seductive. Now, we've been doing this for years and perhaps lifetimes. But awareness is very powerful. We can actually free ourselves from this prison. So there's the concepts we create about physical objects, material. There's concepts created out of mental events, and time is just one. There are many. The most deeply rooted concept that we create and hold and cherish and are attached to is the concept of self. We create a reference point for all experience as if there's someone to whom experience is happening. So it's like this. It's like everything funnels back in a V centered on some concept of I, the observer, the witness, that's who I am. We create a reference point for experience as if it's happening to someone and create the concept of self as if there is someone really there. 
the great awakening, great liberation happens when we realize that the self, the I, is a mental construct. It doesn't refer to anything. It doesn't point to anything. When we drop down or into the nature of experience itself, we see that what is actually happening is, as has been mentioned, empty phenomena rolling on. It's just experiences arising and passing away, not belonging to anybody, not owned by anybody. What we are is this changing process. It's not that the process is happening to someone. There's a nice dialogue between the nun Vajira and Mara. This is from the time of the Buddha. This is from the suttas. I thought this is a little edited version of this dialogue. At one time in Savate, which was one of the, the main cities of that time where the Buddha hung out a lot, one time in Savati, the nun Vajra, getting up in the morning, took her bowl and robe and entered Savati for alms. After eating and returning from alms round, she went into the forest and sat under a tree for her daily meditation. Then Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, trembling and dread in the nun Vajra, and wanting her concentration to fall away, went and addressed her with a verse. Okay, before I go on, (laughs) keep in mind that what might uh, induce fear, trembling, and dread in a nun of the Buddhist time is probably different from what would induce fear, dread, and trembling in us. Okay, so here's the nun Vajra sitting under the tree in the forest doing a daily meditation. Mara comes, addressing her with a verse. This is what he said. By whom is this being created? Where is the maker of this being? How does this being arise? How does this being cease? So it's really the question, who are you? Then this occurred to the nun Vajra. Who could this be? Human or otherworldly, addressing me with this verse. This must be Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, trembling and dread in me. (laughs) And wanting me to fall away from concentration. So the nun Vajra knew this was Mara, and she addressed him back with a verse. Why prattle on about a being, Mara? Why talk on about a being? Are you not just lost in wrong views? This, this mind and body, is just a tangle of conditions. Here, a being is not to be found. Just as the word chariot designates an arrangement of parts, so when there are the aggregates, there occurs the concept being. It is nothing but dukkha arising 
nothing but dukkha which ceases. Then Mara the evil one thought, this nun Vajra knows me. (laughs) And depressed and suffering, he vanished from that very spot. The chariot of this, the simile of the chariot is quite a famous one to illustrate this point. You know, that we use a concept to designate an assemblage of parts, but there's no thing in itself which is a chariot. In the same way, we use the word being or self or man or woman to designate an assemblage, a constellation of elements, but there's no thing existing in itself which corresponds. So why is this concept of self so deeply held? Why is it cherished? Why are we so attached to it? Because it's this concept of self around which our whole lives revolve. We cherish it so strongly because usually in our lives we don't take the time to investigate deeply, to examine carefully. We rely on the surface perception. We see the appearance, we give it a name, we solidify the concept, and then hold on to it. Thinking that that concept refers to someone. We need to see that what we call self, what we call I, is a constellation of changing elements. Each one of them is momentary and insubstantial. We don't see the conditioned nature of phenomena. That is, everything that arises in our experience is arising due to conditions. Their appearance is due to conditions. The conditions change, the appearance changes. Just two examples of this. I think one I mentioned earlier on in the first part of the retreat, but as a reminder to you. You know, when we go outside after a rain and the sun is shining and we might see a rainbow. So we see this phenomena. We call it a rainbow. We put a name on it. And it would be easy to think that the rainbow is actually something in itself. But looked at more carefully, what is a rainbow? I'm not actually sure what a rainbow is. <laughs> but it's, I guess, particles of moisture and air and light and, you know, and the conditions come together and a rainbow appears. But look more carefully, we could see that the rainbow is simply an appearance arising from a certain conjunction of conditions. There's no rainbow thing independent. There's a Joseph appearance. It's just in each one of us arising from a conjunction of elements, of physical, mental elements. If we can see on that level 
then we begin to break through this illusion of I and of self. There's one more example of this, which I couldn't bear to let a course go by without mentioning it. It's my favorite example in the world, (laughs) which is of the Big Dipper. (laughs) I'm sure you're familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper in the sky. And then you look up and you see those stars. Okay, you've all been meditating quite a while now. This is the test. This is your final exam. (laughs) Is there really a Big Dipper? (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) Sorry to break the news before Christmas. (laughs) But there's really no Big Dipper. (laughs) We look up. We see stars in a certain pattern. We give it a name, Big Dipper. And then on some level or other, might think, "Hmm, there's a Big Dipper up there. (laughs) (laughs) And if you think you don't believe this, (laughs) what I would suggest as a test is on some clear night, and especially if you're familiar with this constellation, go outside, look up at the sky, and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. It's very difficult because we've been conditioned to see in a certain way. And so when we see that constellation, it appears in a certain form. We put a name on it. And what does that name do? The function of that concept actually is to separate out those stars from all the other stars in the sky. When we can see free of concept, we're able actually to see the unity, the non-separation, the non-separateness. We are doing the same thing with ourselves. It's like self, I, Joseph, is like Big Dipper. It's a name, it's a concept. To the degree that we are identified, attached to that name and concept, we are imprisoned in separation. We are imprisoned in duality. Kala Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan master who died some years ago and who has since been reborn, is a young Kala Rinpoche now. He had a beautiful teaching. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We're living in the world of concepts and constructs. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing, not identified with anything as being self. And by being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Because what remains is simply the totality of everything that is. We're not separating ourselves out as being just one small part. 
So what are the realities that can be experienced directly? Buddha talked of four, four realities. One are the material physical elements, which we've talked about. <coughs> we experience them as changing sensations, a sight, a sound, a smell, just the material physical world. It's one reality that can be experienced directly. Consciousness, the knowing that arises in each moment out of contact between the sense object and the sense door. When the sense object contacting sense door, that, that particular consciousness arises. So visible object, eye, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness. Okay, so that's a reality that we can experience moment to moment. The third reality are what was called mental factors. All the associated factors arising with consciousness. And we've talked about a lot of them over these months. There are the wholesome ones of love, of generosity, of wisdom, of compassion, of mindfulness, of concentration. There are the unwholesome ones of greed, hatred, delusion, fear, envy, jealousy, all the afflictive emotions. And these are factors, also not I, not self, they don't belong to anybody. They arise in particular moments, out of conditions, they color consciousness in a particular way, and then they pass away. So these are the three realities that are conditioned phenomena. Physical elements, consciousness, mental factors. There's a fourth reality which we can experience directly. And that's what the Buddha called Nibbana. It's Nibbana in Pali or Nirvana or the unconditioned. There's a Thai monk who also died recently. He was a very, he was a wonderful teacher, quite a free thinker. Uh, for being classically trained uh, in Thailand as a monk. His name was Buddhadasa. And he spoke in a very simple and down-to-earth way about the meaning of the Pali word Nibbana, actually what it means. It means coolness. And it's used in Thailand also very colloquially. So the example he gave, which is, quite cute. He said in the villages, you know, when people were cooking food and they were boiling the rice, and then they took the rice off the stove, somebody might say, for example, wait a little bit for the rice to become nibbana, right? For the rice to cool down. Because that's what the word means. It means to cool down. So let's wait for the rice to nibbana a bit. So we can understand the meaning of Nibbana as the mind which is cooled down, free from the fires of the kalesis, the fires of the defilements. Buddhadasa said that the more cool the mind, the more Nibbana in that moment. And so this puts a very kind of down-to-earth 
understanding of what Nibbana is about. It's the mind cooling down. It's the cooling down process. So we can notice through the day the various states of coolness that arise. It's, it's almost like we can pay attention to the Nibbana thermostat. You know, is, is the mind heated up or is it cooled down? A few ways to notice this practically, to actually get an experiential sense of what cooled down means. Notice when the mind is lost in some desire, some wanting, some craving. If not tonight, tomorrow, or the next day, or hopefully before the end of the course. Just wait for the next craving. And if you can, notice carefully that moment of transition when the craving falls away. You may not pick the craving up at the beginning, but perhaps in the middle. You'll be in the middle of some wanting, some desire. It can be a simple one. It can be a very big one. So you're in the middle of some desire. You become aware of it. But pay careful attention to the moment that it falls away. And notice the difference in your experience between those two mind states of the mind filled with desire and the mind freed from the grip of desire. And it's quite amazing because even when there's some pleasantness, some pleasurable aspect to the desire, which is what usually entrances us, if you're attentive enough to that moment of transition, I think you will experience an amazing sense of relief when we're out of the grip of it. It's like we're caught, caught, caught. And then the mind relaxes. It's released. Let's go. Right there, you can get a taste of what coolness means. Even more commonly, pay attention to the difference between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought. Notice what that difference is. Out of that degree of attention, I think you will notice the heat or the fire or the tension of the contraction of being identified with a thought. When we're lost in a thought, it's like we're contracted into it. In the moment of being aware of the thought, again, the mind opens, it releases. You can begin to get a taste of the coolness of the Nibbana of the mind in relationship to pain. Now, when there's some discomfort in the body, very often we're caught in the tension of a resistance, of not liking, of aversion, either in a very gross way or a very subtle way. And often it's around fear. Now, on some level, fear of simply feeling the discomfort, fear of feeling the pain. Notice the difference between that state and when we're able actually to open fully, completely, to just feeling the pain, the discomfort, the unpleasantness. 
It's basically through a certain courage of the heart, a willingness of the heart. Okay, let me feel this. Notice the difference. You will experience, I think, the Nibbana, the coolness of that release. All of these examples, watching the mind be free of the grip of desire, coming out of a thought, the relaxation into unpleasantness, all of these point to qualities of Nibbana, qualities of relief, of release, of openness. Buddhadasa went on to say in this context that we actually couldn't live without Nibbana because it's this quality of coolness which puts out the fires of greed, of hatred, delusion. We couldn't live if the mind were consumed by those fires all the time. So many times during the day, we actually are experiencing a coolness. Pay attention to that. That's an important indication, an important inclination of the mind. When this temporary letting go of the kalesas, we can call it temporary nibbana. When there's the complete eradication of the kalesas, of the tapafamans, we could call it complete or supreme nibbana. So this is one way of understanding Nibbana as coolness, the cooling down of the mind. Now in different Buddhist traditions, even within Theravada, not to speak of Tibetan or Zen, but even within Theravada Buddhism, there's a wide range of perspectives, a wide range of expressions of the experience of the unconditioned. And I just wanted to sort of lay out a little bit of the range of the ways it's understood. One perspective on the experience of the unconditioned, the absolute, is expressed in the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw, and it's very much based of course, on practice, on realization in practice, and also the suttas and the Abhidhamma. So it is a very classical interpretation. This is the understanding, and it's a teaching that's found in almost every sutta of the Buddha. So it's Very common. It's the teaching about the five aggregates and that what we call being is really just the play of the five constituents of material elements, feelings, perceptions, what are called sankharas or all the habituated tendencies and consciousness. 
You know, this is an important point. In this perspective or in this viewpoint, there is no awareness outside of these five aggregates. There is no consciousness outside of this play of the five aggregates. And all of these five aggregates are considered conditioned phenomena, arising and passing away. So consciousness itself, awareness itself, is seen to be part of this conditioned flow. Consciousness itself arising and passing in every moment. So what we do in our practice is to pay attention to each arising. In every moment, things are being known. Right? Sight or sound or smell or sensation or thought or whatever. And as we rest in the mindfulness of each arising moment, what happens is that we go through various stages of insight. And these are classical stages. We call it the progress of insight in this particular model. And we go through stages of tremendous joy and elation when the mind has become concentrated, clear, seeing the arising and passing very sharply. Things Steve spoke the other night, what are called the upakalesas. And it's interesting. There's an interesting uh, happening because at this stage, there's tremendous radiance of mind. There's real luminosity and rapture and concentration and mindfulness, and it's all happening wonderfully and effortlessly. They're really the factors of enlightenment, but they're called corruptions of insight, not because they're problems in themselves, but because of the liability that we get attached to them. They're so pleasant and it's so nice that we cling. Okay, so we go through this stage and then we move on if we're able to actually stay mindful and just watch all of these states come and go. And we go through stages of real dukkha, of misery and fear at seeing the, seeing deeply, really deeply, the unreliability and the continual dissolution of phenomena. But everything is disappearing moment after moment after moment. It's like the rug keeps getting pulled out from under us and there's no place to stand. There's no security. And so seeing this on a very deep level arouses a lot of fear and disgust and misery. This particular time in practice is called rolling up the mat stage because all people want to do is roll up the mat and leave. You know, we don't like to see this. It's very difficult. It's a very difficult time. But if we're persevering and, you know, we have the right support, we stay mindful of these stages. And we come to a place of very profound equanimity where the mind settles into a balance in which it is completely non-reactive to both pleasant and unpleasant. And this is a very tremendous state of ease and well-being. The mind has reached a perfect balance. On this place of equanimity, all the factors of enlightenment are ripening. You know, of mindfulness, investigation, rapture, concentration, calm, etc. There's no craving at this point. There's no yearning, not even for the next breath, or no craving for existence. The mind has settled back into itself completely. There's no urge for becoming or not becoming. 
And what happens at that time? This flow of continuously arising conditioned objects, which is happening moment after moment after moment, when everything is in balance and ripened, can suddenly and abruptly just come to a stop, come to a halt. And the mind alights, or consciousness alights on the unconditioned, on Nibbana, the unborn. Through the force of non-clinging, non-craving for anything, out of that perfect balance, this conditioned flow of phenomena stops and the mind opens to what is unconditioned. Now in Pali, this is called Maga, Magafala, or path fruition consciousness. And it has the very great power of uprooting from the mind defilements in different stages so that they don't arise again. And this is where the model comes of stages of enlightenment. So the first glimpse, for example, of this unborn, unconditioned reality uproots the belief in self, in I. So it's a very powerful transformation. Through later development of further successive stages, slowly greed is uprooted, desire is uprooted, restlessness is uprooted. So this is the model or the experience of purification from this view. O bhikkhus, there is that sphere where there is neither earth, nor air, nor fire, nor water, neither this world nor the next, neither coming or going. There is an unborn, unbecome. O bhikkhus, I shall teach you the unformed, the profound. So this is the mind opening to that reality. We call it absolute nibbana. There's a story about Sariputta, who was disclaiming about the bliss of nibbana. He was saying, oh, the bliss of nibbana, the bliss of nibbana. And one of the monks said, oh, Sariputta, venerable one, if there are no sensations in nibbana, how can it be blissful? You know, because our whole association you know, with bliss is of blissful sensations. And Sariputta said, My friend, it is precisely because there is no sensations that it is blissful. So in this light, we understand nibbana, or the unconditioned, as putting down the burden of ceaselessly changing phenomena. And we see that what we call self, what we call I, is just phenomena arising and passing ceaselessly. Manindraja used to say often, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing? Where is the end of thinking? We've been doing this endlessly. 
And so the experience of the unconditioned from this perspective is the putting down of that burden, the relief. An example which came to my mind, you know the experience of sitting in a kitchen someplace and just talking or eating or whatever, and then all of a sudden the hum of the refrigerator goes off. And there's that, uh, you know, it's like that moment of relief about something that we didn't even know was a problem until it stopped. And then we realized the disturbance of it. So this is something like that. You know, it's this endless hum of conditioned phenomena, endlessly arising and passing, and then the experience of the stopping of that and the reality of that peace. So this is one both viewpoint and perspective and experience that happens for people. There's another perspective on the experience of Nibbana or the unconditioned. And it's most clearly articulated in the teachings of the Thai forest tradition. In this tradition, a distinction is made between the consciousness, the conditioned consciousness of the aggregates, you know, arising and passing at each sense door, and what they call jitta, translated as the heart, but the heart meaning the mind. So the heart-mind. And in the experience of the great masters of the Thai forest tradition, this experience of jitta in its unmodified form is beyond the aggregates. There's no sign by which it can be known. Sometimes it's called the signless because it has no sign of impermanence. And this is the mind free of any kalesa. One of the great Thai masters who's still living, who was a disciple of Ajahn Man, the person I've spoken about with, you know, with this very fierce and, and powerful teacher, is, his name is Ajahn Mahabua. And he has a monastery in northeast Thailand. He gives teachings about the conventional mind and the mind released. Now, the conventional mind is the mind conditioned by the tides of conceiving, our usual mind, all the things that are going on all the time, conditioned by ignorance, conditioned by craving. And this is what we're familiar with. But when these kalesas disappear through mindfulness, through wisdom, then the true mind or the mind released appears in its full aspect. And all that remains is pure awareness, simple awareness, naturally pure awareness. Now, this awareness has no reference point. It has no center. 
can't be located in any particular place. It's unsupported, unconditioned, unconstructed. And all of the aggregates are still functioning. Right? The material elements and feelings and perceptions and consciousness at the sense doors and the tendencies, they all still function according to their own nature. But the mind which is released, completely released, is not in any way affected by them. So just if you can imagine for a moment, just the mind, the mind empty of any kalesa, any clinging at all, any attachment at all, pure, clear, unobstructed, unaffected by any arising appearance. This pure awareness does not partake of any feeling except for the feeling of what Ajahn Mahabho called ultimate ease or the very nature of the released mind. Ultimate ease or the highest peace. And what he emphasized in his teachings was that all the kalesas, the defilements, the path of practice, and the simple and utterly pure awareness are already right here in the heart. So it's not something out there to find, it's something to uncover. This is from the teachings of the Buddha, an explanation of the third noble truth. Now the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The second is the cause of suffering. The third is the end of suffering, or Nibbana. And the fourth is the path leading to the end. What now is the noble truth of the extinction of suffering? It is the complete, complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It's forsaking and abandonment, liberation and detachment from it, from the craving, the extinction of greed, of hatred, of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. And remember in listening to this that it's not about something outside of ourselves. Right now, in listening, drop back into this very space. It's our own minds, the nature of our own minds, free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion, right now. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing more remains to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. One is steadfast in mind, gained is deliverance. 
Remember, this is our own minds. One who has considered all the contrasts of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything whatever in the world. The peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has passed beyond birth and death. It's our own minds, freed from rage, freed from sorrow, freed from longing, has passed beyond birth and death. This I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still nor being born nor dying. There is neither foothold nor development nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. Hence the purpose of the holy life does not consist in acquiring alms, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. This unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the object of the holy life. That is its essence, that is its goal. But this is what our practice is all about. It's actually coming to discover this unshakable deliverance of the heart, of the mind. And we do it gradually. We do it in stages. We get glimpses of the mind unfettered by kalesis. Pay attention to the quality of that mind. something as profound and as subtle and as transforming as the experience of the unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed of Nibbana, there will always be a variety of perspectives about it or ways of expressing the experience. I appreciate the range because it helps keeps our, keep our own mind free from any ideas or concepts about it. Can we settle back into the openness of our own experience without preconception? And resting even for a moment in that mind which is not bound, which is not craving, which is not clinging. Let's sit for a few minutes.